in July, on July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, one of the greatest pastors, who also happened to be one of the greatest theologians, delivered one of the greatest sermons ever delivered, certainly in American history, but if not in American history, um, very likely even human history. The man was Jonathan Edwards. The sermon he delivered, again, in Enfield, July 8th, 1741, was a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, implied by its title, it was a, a very, um, it contained a potent combination of Scripture, which was Jonathan Edwards' indispensable basis for everything he said. Vivid imagery of hell, all intermixed with his observations of what he saw as evils in the world. 1741. Can you imagine what uh, what, uh, what uh, Edwards might title his sermon today, if this is what he said in 1741. His sermon was so powerful, it is studied and read by many people today. You can Google it, and I'm sure find it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it contributed to what many historians called the first great awakening in America, which happened approximately 1730 to 1755, the first great awakening in America, i.e. when uh, about 100 years earlier, pilgrims, Puritans, and people came over, they, they fell away and they needed an awakening. We know that in American history, we also had a second great awakening some 100 plus years later. And my opinion is that if we don't have a third great awakening very, very soon, um, God's going to awaken us to what he's doing here um, in the account of Nahum chapter 2 to 3, bring judgment. It was written, according to Edwards, to awaken his audience and give them a chance to change their lives so that they both would know Christ and commensurately live a holy life for him. That's why Edwards wrote the sermon. By the way, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but uh, God is a little sarcastic in this text. I want to be sarcastic a little bit. I wonder, what, I wonder what some of the largest church pastors in America would preach as their hallmark sermon. Do you think it would be sinners in the hands of an angry God? Do you think Americans could even handle that? Their, their message today might be misguided people in the chair of a loving therapist. That might be the sermon today. Something like that. We don't want to hear about judgment. I guarantee if I had another topic, we'd have more people here. But talk about judgment. Who wants to hear about that mess? Well, the truth of the matter is anybody who wants to walk with God wants to hear about judgment. And it's not a mess. It's really important. So tonight, in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God fashion, God is going to talk about the sinners in his hands, the Ninevites, and as we go through Nahum chapter 2 to 3, we're going to look at the judgment of God. And I hope that Jonathan Edwards' intent in his famous sermon would be something that would happen to us, that we would be shaken, that we'd be awakened and take sin 
more seriously than we do. I don't know about you, but I take sin seriously, but I can almost guarantee you I do not take sin seriously enough. So let's review where we've been. On the back of your notes, you'll see a book chart. Let's, let's spend some time looking at that. Nahum is the book that covers when God becomes judge. Last time we covered chapter 1, which is who God is. Tonight we're going to cover chapter 2 to 3, what God does. In chapter 1, we saw the judge, God, and we saw his right to judge. In chapter 2 to 3, we see the judgment. This is Nineveh's fall in judgment. Now, this is important to understand, and I'll, I'll bring this out again. You're going to read and hear about Nineveh's fall in judgment in chapter 2 to 3. This is really important, so get this. It's going to sound like it's happening or already happened, but it hadn't. It hadn't happened. It would not happen until 612 B.C. So you need to remember that it was anticipated. But God is so certain in his judgment, he speaks of it as already have happened. That's how God is. God calls things that are not as though they were. I mean, he, he, he declares things about the future as if they are fact when he decides to. And in chapter 1, we saw how it was an oracle to Nahum based on God's character and according to God's commands. That was the judge. It described the judge. In chapter 2 and 3 tonight, the judgment, we're going to see the description of Nineveh's fall, chapter 2, and then the reasons for Nineveh's fall, chapter 3. So we're actually going to cover two chapters tonight. Remember, the author was Nahum, a prophet, a spokesman for God who received this oracle. It was written somewhere between the fall of Thebes. We're going to see what Thebes is a little bit, which we know was a historic fact, 663. And we know that was, that was spoken of as if it was already occurred, and it had already occurred, and the actual fall of Nineveh in 612. Remember, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So tonight I may say Nineveh, I may say Assyria. The capital city of Nineveh is what's under attack, but it was the capital city of the world empire or the nation of Assyria. So I may say them interchangeably, but fundamentally it's the attack on Nineveh. And you remember the story, how Nahum ties to Jonah. When the Lord said, go, the prophet said, no, he swallowed by a great fish. Chapter three, he goes and Nineveh repents. Well, this is over about a hundred plus years later. And Nahum goes back to its old ways, and God says, I gave you a chance, you repented, you had over a hundred years to maintain that repentance, you failed, now I'm going to bring judgment. So that's a little bit of background, and so if you missed last time, you got also got a little catch-up. Last time in chapter 1, we read general statements about God's judgment and why he judged. Tonight, in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to examine the specifics of how God judged Nineveh. So first, in chapter 2, let's look at the description of Nineveh's fall under God's judgment. God's going to describe how he judged it. Now, right there in your notes, let me give you the historical background. It's important. In 612 B.C., which had not occurred yet, the Babylonians under Nabopolassar, by the way, after Nineveh fell and the Assyrians fell, the next world empire after the Assyrians would be this group. The Babylonians, not under Nabopolassar, but later in 586 B.C. when they finally destroyed Judah, the final two tribes uh, of, of the entire 12-tribe nation of Israel, it would be under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. The second group 
which God was going to use in the future to wipe out the Ninevites would be the Medes under uh, Syaxerez. I'm not exactly sure how to say that with all them X's, uh, all those X's, that X, that singular one X up there, and I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. The Medes, after the Babylonians came to power and faded, the Medes, interestingly, would be the next power after the Babylonians, who were after the Assyrians, and the Medes would partner with the Persians, and they would form a compound empire called the Medo-Medes Persian Persia Empire. And we know all this because in, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel saw a vision of the future, he saw the Assyrians, which were the current power, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and then, of course, Greece, and then Rome. So there's your little history lesson on world empires for the last 800 years leading up to the time of Christ. And then to a lesser degree, uh, the Scythians, they formed an alliance to attack and cause the fall of Nineveh, again, the capital city of Assyria. God used pagan nations to judge the evil nation of Assyria and the capital city of Nineveh. I want you to know something. God will use everybody for his purposes. Proverbs says God uses everything for his purposes, even the evil for his purposes. You know that? Everything on planet Earth is used by God for his purposes. Hitler was used by God for his purposes. We don't fully understand it. It's hard to comprehend. I don't fully get it, but Romans 13 says no leader comes to power unless God allows it. But even pagan nations that are bad, God will use to bring judgment on perhaps a more pagan nation, a more evil nation, and that's what he does. But again, this event had not happened yet, God was predicting it in such stunning detail to show his power so that when it happened, people would go, just as the Lord said. Now, first we read about, under the description of Nineveh's fall, the attack against Nineveh in verses verses 1 to 6. And if I were to define this for you, it's swift and indefensible. It's swift and indefensible. God's going to move in quickly, and you're going to do nothing about it. So let's look at verses 1 to 6. It says, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Now, what tense is that? An attacker advances against you. It's in the present tense. But it hadn't happened. It's going to happen in the future. So, But God speaks of it in the present tense because of its absolute certainty. He says, it's going to happen. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. And and of course, those are the three nations. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. God says, do everything you can. Try to fight it off. Just bring your best defenses to the table. It's not going to work. Verse 2, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Now he drops this in for this reason. He's saying, I'm, the reason why I'm doing this is to bring justice to the people of Israel, or Judah, the the two southern tribes. Remember, at this point in time, in 722 and 721, a previous king in Assyria named Sennacherib came in and took over the ten tribes and dispersed them. There's only two tribes left, Judah. And and they they were under siege and attack by Assyria and Nineveh, but they never totally took over Jerusalem, the capital city of the two southern tribes. And what he's saying there is, I'm going to 
you, you went after them, you went after my people, I'm going to defend my people. That's why he says the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. They'll, they'll make a comeback, like the splendor of Israel, which had already fallen in 722, but he spoke of their splendor before they fell. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines, which is part of what the Assyrians did to part of Judah. Verse 3, the shields of his soldiers are red. Now he's describing the attacking nations. The warriors are clad in scarlet. They're majestic, poised, ready to go. The metal on the chariots flashes, and on the day they are made ready. Uh, oftentimes, shields and pieces of equipment were polished and shined to add an element of reflection to show the readiness of the attacking army and to intimidate the, the, the country being attacked. The spears of pine are brandished. Everything's being prepared for battle. When you're ready for battle, you prepare for battle. God's saying, I will prepare these nations. Don't you worry about it, Nineveh. Verse 4, the chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. They're swift. Verse 5, he summons his picked troops. Now, who's the he? That's the, that's the debated thing. Is he the attacking armies? I don't think so. I think he is the Assyrian king who was not in place at the time, but was a subsequent king. The Assyrian king is trying to marshal some defense. So I think that he refers to not the attacking armies, but the Assyrian king. So he, the Assyrian king, summons his picked troops. What are we going to do? Let's get our best troops. Yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall where they would be attacked to try to defend themselves. The, protector, the, the protective shield is put in place. And then something very interesting, verse 6. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. The whole idea is these people are going to come, they're going to attack, and you're going to do everything you can. Get your best this, your best that, everything you possibly can. Get it all ready. You know what's going to happen? It's not going to work. And then it says the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. The palace probably the place where king of Assyria or of Nineveh will, um, and also of Assyria, will be when the attack comes. Now, what does it mean the river gate will be thrown open? Well, through the city of Nineveh, we know from history that the Koser River flowed right through the city of Nineveh. That was really good because by having the river flow through the city, Water, and we'll see this later, is very important. You need water to survive, obviously drinking water, and you need water to survive in terms of anything you do, you need water. And we'll see this later when they wanted to repair their, their walls. They needed water and mortar and brick and such. So you need water. So to have water go right through the city was awesome. And if it wasn't protected, they were in trouble. Well, archaeological evidence suggests that these three powers that were attacking Nineveh actually built up a double wooden dam on the Koser River uh, as it was heading toward the city of Nineveh. A double dam. It's not like I just swore, but a, a literal dam. A double dam. And what they did was they held back the water. Now, when they held back the water, again, the water needed for commerce, for, for work, and for production, gone. The water needed for drinking and surviving, gone. Until they felt that the water was backed up enough, depriving them of water, had accomplished what it wanted, what they wanted to do. And then, verse 6, the river gates are thrown open. Apparently then, 
they threw open these double dams. They, they're, they're probably what's referred to, nobody knows for sure, but likely what's referred to in the river gates and allowed the water to crash and damage and flood the city. Then the palace collapsed. So water literally rushed into the city and it was one of the means in which they initiated the attack. The water rushed into the city, created calamity, created damage to the wall around the city and that allowed the confusion and the damage allowed the armies to invade and come in. And that's what seems to be what caused the palace to collapse and then opens up the door. So the attack against Nineveh is swift and indefensible. When God reaches his limit with human sin, he moves swiftly and certainly. God often extends lots of time to repent. In this case, the city of Nineveh had well over 100 years to maintain its repentance, but it fell away quickly after the preaching of Jonah. For over 100 years, it stayed evil. And God said, I've given you plenty of time. So God will wait, wait, wait. When God reaches the limit, he's swift. And his judgment is indefensible. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to curtail it. You're not going to contain it. It's going to come. An imagery in the Old Testament quite often is that when God brings judgment, it uses this imagery that, that, that my cup is full of the wrath of God. In other words, it's almost like every time we sin, it, it adds to the cup. And God says when you sin so much, the cup gets full. And what happens when the cup is full? It overflows. And uh, God never says, I get mad after seven and a half years or after three of these. He doesn't quantify it because God has his own discernment on what a cup being full for every situation is, and it's different. But when God's cup is full, that's it. He's swift, and his judgment will not be defended against. And that's what the Nineveh, the people of Nineveh were facing. Not only was the attack against Nineveh swift and indefensible, the defeat of Nineveh that would happen in the future would be complete and a retributive or retributive. In other words, it will be to bring retribution for their sin. Verses 7 to 13. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. It is decreed. You see that? God says it's going to happen. God's will is either he either permits or he decrees. When he permits, he's not personally involved. He just removes the restraint that allows sin to cause something. When, it, when Hitler came to power, God did not say, I, 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 Hitler, you're my choice. What God did was he allowed Hitler to be the choice. But here he says, I'm not allowing it. I am decreeing it. I'm, I, this is the part of my will that declares that it will happen. And it will be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls will moan like doves and beat upon their breasts, which is a sign of contrition, and not, not of contrition, a sign of uh, agony and pain. Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool, and its water is draining away. It, it, it has the idea of the water coming in dur during this double dam flood, and then now it's just draining away, and now the attack's going to begin once the water drains away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. And that's the city leaders. You know, stop, stop, don't leave, fight, you know, protect. But, but, but it's useless. 
Verse 9, plunder the silver. He's speaking now. Again, he changes sometimes between whether it's the Ninevites or the attackers. And now he switches back to the attackers. And he commands them to command, plunder the silver. That is, take the silver. Plunder the gold. Take their gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. And he explains how in verse 10. She, Nineveh, pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt away. Knees give way. Bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. Just like the Ninevites treated the nations that they conquered, God says, I'm going to make you feel that way. You plundered. Whenever they took over a nation, they would plunder everything of gold and silver. Common practice among nations. And then they treated people so horrifically, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, that God says, that's the way you treated people. This is the way you're going to be treated. And he says, Every knee will give way, every body will tremble, every face grows pale. It's a stunning picture. It's how they left their victims. God says, it's how I'm going to leave you as part of my judgment. When God judges, it's complete. He brings a flood, he brings a fire, he brings a sword. I mean, that's pretty complete. When God judges, he judges to bring retribution. You did this to them, I'm going to defend them, I'm going to do to you what you did to them. You took plunder from people, it will be taken away from you. You thought you were a lion, you will be hunted down. You thought uh, you could defeat others, but now no one will hear your cry for help. Look at verse 11. Where now is the lion's den? the place where they feed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. It's describing Nineveh as a lion. Why? Because Nineveh thought of itself as a lion. Many of the kings said, I roared like a lion. There are quotes of kings when they took over other nations. They described themselves as a lion, which is a very ferocious, dominating animal, and then their prey, helpless victims to them as lions. And so God says, you treat people like a lion? Or you thought you were a lion? Now you're going to be treated as a lion. Verse uh, 12, the lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling the lairs with kill and his dens with prey. Talking about the history of Nineveh, always winning and always defeating other nations like a lion. It's saying you had your way then. But verse uh, 13, but I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots with smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no Pray on earth. That's the end of your domination in the world. The voices of your messengers will be heard no longer. So it's complete and it's uh, retributive. That's a description of Nineveh's fall under God's judgment. And it's important to understand that God will wait, but he's swift and indefensible. And he's complete and he's retributive. I mean, you think about the way God judges when we think about our own life and our own sin to avoid this kind of thing. Now, in the final chapter of Nahum, chapter 3, he's going to give the reasons for Nineveh's fall under God's judgment. He gives three basic reasons in verses 1 to 7, the first reason, 8 to 11, the second, and then 12 to 19, the third. So he ends Nahum with three strong reasons for his judgment. So the reasons for his judgment, number one, and I try to give this in a timeless principle. God eventually brings judgment 
for violence and deceit. We're going to see how violent they were and how deceitful they were. And God says, can't take that. Let me bring judgment. Verses 1 to 7. Woe to the city of blood. They were very murderous and full of lies. They would make treaties and pacts with nations. And, and they would say, well, we'll help you if you'll submit to us. They would submit to them. And they would only provide them partial help, allowing them to be partially defeated to accomplish their will. So they broke covenants, treaties with other nations. Full of plunder, never without victims. And then he gives 11 short descriptions of Nineveh's destruction. The crack of whips. This is all, again, he cha- what happens in Nahum a lot is he changes between, who's he talking about? The Ninevites or the attackers? The Ninevites or the attackers? So first he's talking about the Ninevites. He, he says, woe to the city of blush. He's talking about them. Then he quickly changes to what the attackers will do. And here's 11 things they do. The crack of whips that will be all over Nineveh. The clatter of wheels as the chariots go through. Galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. 11 stunning things. Piles of dead, bodies without number. Everything God does... You know, we would just say, well, yeah, piles of dead. And we just think, well, oh, well. But he chose piles of dead because this is exactly how the Ninevites treated their nations. The Assyrian king Shalmaneser III used to boast of erecting a pyramid of chopped off heads and kept them uh, in front of an enemy city. So whenever he would have some victories, he would get chopped off heads and put them in front of the enemy city. It was cruel, it was barbaric. It was to put fear into the people. Either give in, and maybe things will go well for you, or if not, your head could be the next added to this pile. Other Assyrian kings stacked corpses like cordwood by the gates of defeated cities. Uh, If you've ever seen those old movies of World War II, they're, they're sickening, where Adolf Hitler would murder and butcher mostly Jewish people, but other people, and then they would just pile them in pits. And that's what the Assyrians would do. They'd get these dead bodies and callously pile them in front of cities to intimidate their victims. They were just barbaric that way. And God says, that's the way you treated people. That's what's going to happen to you. All because, here's the reason, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot. Lust for what? Lust for more power. Lust for more world domination. Lust. You know, we, I say the word lust, and all we ever think about sometimes is sex. Well, you can lust for a lot of things. You can lust for somebody's house. You can lust for somebody's uh, job, finances, and you can lust for power. You can lust for a lot of things. Alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. By the way, the nation of Nineveh worshipped many, many gods. One of their gods was the god Ishtar, the god of sex and the god of war. So it's interesting that words like lust and harlot and prostitution, uh, enslaved and things like that. And it was witchcraft because it was an abomination to God. Verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord. He says it again. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. When prostitutes... And harlots were uh, uncovered for their sinfulness. One of their penalties was to literally lift up their skirt and show 
you know, and there were no panties. I mean, lift it up and show uh, the shame of their, their organs and their, their body. And it was a shameful punishment. It was an expression of utter shame. He says, in that sense, that's how you'll be shamed. I will pelt you with filth. Graphic picture. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh's in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Why would they? Every nation, they creamed and treated like garbage. The point is every nation, no nation would be willing to help these people. So God eventually brings judgment for violence and deceit. For violence and deceit. And God did it in a way to make it clear that what they did would come back to them. Violence. Deceit. It's a troubling combination. God judges it. So God eventually brings judgment for the violence and deceit of Nineveh. Second reason why God brought Nineveh under judgment, and while he'll bring other people under judgment, is God eventually brings judgment for her treatment of others, the way the nation treated others. And here, he brings the example of Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S. And it was a, it was a region and he uses Thebes, so as a as preparation, he uses Thebes to say, just like Thebes was, you will be. Thebes had strong defenses, thought it was in, impenetrable, but you penetrated it, and I'll do the same to you. Thebes thought it was, you know, the greatest nation that would always stand, but they didn't, and I'm going to do that to you. And they did so unjustly. And so with that in mind, look at what he says. Are you any better than Thebes? You, you think that because they thought they couldn't, get a, they couldn't be penetrated, but they were, that it's going to be different for you? He goes on, situated on the Nile. Again, always good to be by, some, by a river or some body of water. With water around her, it was a defense system. The river was her defense. The water's her wall. He's trying to build up. Well, look at all this protection they had. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Look at all the strong allies it had. I mean, it's got ge- uh, geographic protection. It's got militaristic protection from other nations. Certainly it couldn't have gone down. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. And as you see in your notes, that happened in 663 by the Assyrians. So God says, surely you remember this. They thought they were inconquerable, but they were conquered all oh, by you. Guess what? You think you're inconquerable. You think nobody can take you. But I'm here to tell you, I can. And then look at how it describes what the Ninevites did. Her infants, this is the infants of Thebes, were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They literally got infants. And every conquering nation did different things with children, with noblemen, with people of different age, elderly. But what they did, they would get babies and literally throw them to the ground, and smash their skulls at critical places in the city to bring further fear to the people in the city as they were starting to conquer it. It was evil. It was barbaric. It was violent and deceitful. And it was an evil treatment. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. Assyrian kings often um, would capture kings or noblemen in other countries and chain them up. Uh, one king, King Asher uh, Banapal, said this, I put a dog chain on, 
we don't know exactly what king he was referring to. So I put a dog chain on him and made him occupy a kennel at the eastern gate of Nineveh. Literally had a dog kennel, treated a human being like a dog. And this infuriated God Almighty. You too will become drunk. Again, the idea is drunk in the sense of this, that the wrath of God is filled up and you'll be drunk. You'll be wiped out. You'll be staggering at the judgment. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. God says, I'm judging you for your horrific treatment of people and I will do to you just what you did to Thebes. Just like Thebes thought it was indefensible, but was it? You think you're indefensible, but you aren't. If you want to put a, a phrase around this, it's this. What goes around, comes around. Be certain of this, the New Testament says. A man reaps what he sows. man reaps what he sows. And if there could be a summary of even tonight, God's judgment is giving people what they deserve for what they inflicted on others. It, 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 it's, for God to never, ever do anything would mean he is not just, and he is. And then finally, the very, very end, the third reason God eventually brings judgment is for self-reliance and cruelty. And this is fascinating. I made this observation, and uh, it's amazing. For self-reliance and cruelty. So as we end, he says in verses 12 to 19, all your fortresses are like fig trees. Well, that's kind of weird. With their first ripe fruit, when they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. In the spring, when the first figs come on a fig tree, those are very easy to shake off. I guess the later figs are more difficult to shake off. So it's just a little shake, and the fig falls off into the mouth of the eater. So you could literally stand right there and have some fun with it. Hey, shake the fig tree and catch figs in your mouth. The idea is that you are so ripe for judgment. And of course, who are the eaters? Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians, these three attacking armies. It says you're so ripe for judgment that we don't know so much about fig trees because they're not common here in Rochester, New York. But if we, if we knew it, it'd be such a vivid imagery. Verse 13, look at your troops. They are all like women, you know? Is this a commentary on women in military? I don't know. It's certainly, the whole idea is that they're defense, defenseless and they, they're afraid. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire is consumed as far as, again, cities were protected by walls and gates. Verse 14, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brick. And according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, He's, God's ridiculing the irony that Nahum um, again ordered the Ninevites to defend themselves even though God's going to do it. He, uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary continues, when a city is under siege, one of its most urgent needs is an adequate supply of clean drinking water. And when the enemy would tear off some bricks of the city's wall, as the Assyrians often did to others, and we're going to have it done to them, the city under attack would need to repair those weakened places in the wall with new brick and new mortar. But when you don't have water, you can't do it. And they couldn't do it. Then the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down and like grasshoppers consume you. 
multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. Again, he's speaking of the invading armies. He just says, just have a bunch of you. Verse 16, you have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky, but like locusts they will strip the land, then fly away. He's saying, you, you traded so much with other nations, you had so much plunder that you traded, got what you wanted, and now you're not going to have any more merchants, no more trade, it's all over. And then he does something interesting. He says the invading people are like locusts, and then he describes Nineveh as being like locusts. He says, your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. Locusts at night would cling to walls. Uh, they attract, you know, the walls would absorb heat of the day, and they would, in the cool of the night, get some warmth from the walls. When the sun came out, the walls would get hot, and they would fly away. He's saying, locusts are going to invade you, and you're going to be like locusts, but you're going to be like locusts in the day. Nowhere to be found. Everybody fleeing, nobody fighting, nobody defending. It's all over, gang. That's what he's saying. And then he ends, O king of Assyria. This is prophetic because this would not be the king who was king when they were destroyed in, in um, 612. Your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. You, you think nothing's going to happen. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? What an abrupt ending to the letter. He says, you've been so cruel. Who hasn't felt it? No one will defend you. Everybody will be happy that you're done. Now, God eventually brings judgment for self-reliance and cruelty. Now, think about this. Self-reliance is what? Thinking you can make life work without God Almighty. And cruelty is what? Treating people horribly. Watch this. Jump to the New Testament. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The antithesis of self-reliance. And there's another one, second in importance. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't treat people cruelly. It's like what God said has been his eternal value of the two great commandments. Love God, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, lots of details, but let me end with three quick principles, and then we'll do a Q&A and be done. Number one, a lot of details, but let me just boil it down. God brings his ultimate judgment to bring about his ultimate justice. I think that was very, very clear. The nations that were treated poorly got revenge back. Judah which was under attack, was given reprieve. We know later in 586 they would fall. But God brought judgment to bring about justice. You go, boy, I wish God would bring some justice right now. Well, be careful because we might be the ones that need the judgment. But that leads to my second principle. God's judgment may be slow by our standards, but it is always sure by his standards. God's judgment may be slow by our standards, but it is always sure by his standards. Our time is not God's time. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And then finally, God's judgment is serious business designed to help us always take his business seriously. 
It's serious business so that we'll take his business seriously. Why do you think, why do you think God preserved Nahum's account of the destruction of Nineveh? Just so Judah would say, oh, I'm glad they're gone? Yeah, that's part of it. You think there was more to it? Can I tell you what I think there was a lot more to it than that, what it was all about? To warn Judah to not sin that way and experience God's judgment. They didn't listen, and in 586, they were conquered by the Babylonians. If God wrote Nahum to warn the people of Judah to avoid sin and not be judged, and we're supposed to read the Bible, and all these things were written to us for our encouragement and for our learning, the New Testament says, what does that mean? We should do the same thing. You may not have gotten every detail. You may have said, oh my goodness, DePaolo, you gave me such a history lesson tonight. You blew me away with so many details. Listen, I didn't even know half this stuff before this week. I'm just telling you. But if you get one thing, the reason for this is to say, don't play with sin. Because when you do, you open the door for God's judgment. I'm not here to tell you how much sin or what, but it is a humble warning to have short accounts with sin to avoid God's judgment. The great thing is that as a Christian, God has not eternally judged us. And maybe judge is not the right word. Sometimes maybe the word is discipline. But God will do something when sin happens in your life for so long because he loves you. And let's just pray for those that are under God's judgment that they will turn to him. Lord God, thank you for this night. And thank you for the understanding of judgment that we've learned about in Nahum. I, I know that I've profited from it, and I, I pray that people here tonight have as well. And I pray that we would understand the judgment of you, and that we would fear you in a humble way. And that we'd make amends for our sin and repent of them and try to live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Okay. Um... Before I do the Q&A, because I know some of you may have to leave and give you a little time to think of your questions, we got about seven minutes for Q&A, um, I want to let you know that next time we meet, we will not have our, set, our third Thursday of the month. It's just too close to Christmas, and with Thursday, and then Sunday, and then Monday, Christmas Eve, it would just be way too much. So we're ending our year, but in January, now January, it's not going to be the first and third Thursday, it's going to be the second and fourth. You're like, I can't remember all that. Just get one of these. Because starting on Thursday, January 10th, again, the third just be too close to the new year, we're doing the book of Ephesians for 12 weeks. And believe me, it will be a lot easier to understand than Nahum. But I, I hope you were stretched. So Ephesians, it's a great, great book. Great book. I'm excited to study it with you. And 12 weeks through that incredible six-chapter book. So if you have to go, I understand. Have a good evening. Any questions on the judgment of God? Yes. Got a question. Yes. Yeah. So the question is if if you sin so much that you can fill up the cup of the wrath of God. If you're a Christian, if you repent of your sin, does that mean the cup goes down, if you will? Yes. As long as you remember, 
The word repent is an interesting word. People debate about this all the time. The word repent in the New Testament means to change your mind. Unfortunately, people limit repentance to promises to change and everything else. That's not in the Bible. This is interesting. People say, you know, you, when people need to come to Christ, you need to tell them to repent. And you do. But when you tell people to believe in Jesus Christ for their sin, you're telling them to repent. Can I just tell you something? Just a little lesson on repentance. People say, if you don't tell them to repent, you haven't presented the gospel. Please read the gospel of John. Guess how many times the word repent occurs in the gospel of John? Zero. So people get all hung up. You gotta say repent, and you gotta be, you gotta spit when you say it, and your pupils gotta be dilated, and you gotta look like you, you lost your mother. And John doesn't use repent once. And John 20, 31 says that I've written these things so that you may know how you may have eternal life and life in his name. So you don't have to use the word repent. I'm giving you a big lesson here on repentance. If you got a coin, I wish I had a coin here, but let's, let's say I have a coin right here. I really have a, a dollar bill. But, if, but if, I, if I go like this and I say, let's say it's a quarter, who's on the front? George Washington. What's on the back? An eagle. Right, in God we trust. But I'm just, you're, you're ruining my illustration, Wendy. So, so if you got George Washington on the front and the eagle, I say, well, what do you see? Well, I see an eagle. And I turn it around. What do you see? I see George Washington. Well, which is it? They're both right. If I say I've got a coin with George Washington on it, and I say I have a coin with an eagle on it, I'm saying the same thing. If I say, put your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin, I have, in effect, told you, repent. I don't have to use that word. It drives me nuts when people say that. Now, I will say this. A lot of people say, come to Christ, and they never talk about sin. i got a huge problem with that. Huge problem with that. You're telling somebody to become a Christian, and you never talk about their sinfulness. Sin better be a part of it. But you don't have to use the word repent. Now that I've gotten off that, the word repent means to change your mind. But... This is why Jesus says, repent, and then he says what? Show the fruit of repentance. Change your mind, and then demonstrate that you have a changed mind with a changed life. So to answer your question, yes, if you repent with the desire to change. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody's got a substance abuse problem, okay? They may say, man, I'm really, you know, I, 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 I smoked, I'm, I'm, I'll probably say something dated, I, I smoked a bong of crack. I don't even know what. I did crack, and I really hate it. I'm really sorry for it. But then they got weak, and they did it again, and they're sorry. If you're fighting it, if you're battling it, and, and you fail and you lose, I, I think there's some valid repentance in that. But if you're like, I don't care. I'm going to do some crack or whatever. I'm just going to do it, and I don't care. Then there's no repentance. So you can actually have some demonstrated contrition. But of course, if you just stay in your sin, you say, well, I really don't care. I'm just going to do it my way. Then, then you may think you repented, but you haven't repented and demonstrated what Jesus said, the fruit of repentance. So repentance means to change your mind. But implied in that is it's a change of mind that will commensurately lead to a change in life. Repent does not mean change your life. I don't care what anybody says. It's metanoia, meta, change, noia, mind. Change your mind. That's literally what it means. Nobody can say anything else. 
but implied, it means to change your mind in such a way that you change your life. So if the change of your mind, that kind of repentance leads to a change in your life, you can be absolutely sure that the cup that God builds up in judging you comes down. Now, I know the Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. I personally do not believe judgment is the main characteristic that God uses for Christians. Uh, Revelation 3, God has not appointed us unto wrath. So, but I do believe that God does bring, does make judgments in the sense of discernments, and he does bring discipline. That's an absolutely valid word. And we do know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the guy had sex with his stepmother, the Bible says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, God can bring, whether you call it discipline or judgment, whatever you call it, you could be a Christian that's so wayward, we know this from 1 Corinthians 5, that God could say, your life is over on earth. He says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, which means it was a Christian, which means he wasn't going to lose his salvation. But God can judge you so severely that he can take your life away on earth. You're still going to heaven, but that's how severe God's judgment can be. So whether you call it judgment or discipline or whatever word, God, whatever it is, God doesn't play. I know you're totally forgiven. When you, we said this last Thursday at the baptism. When you are baptized and you believe in Jesus, well, well when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven of all your sins. I say this in the past, present, and future. You're forgiven in an absolute sense, but in a temporal sense, God can still bring discipline for it. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. 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 And it's not that God's going to disown you. When we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You cannot lose your salvation. There's so many texts that say this. But having said that, you can't, well, people say, well, you can accept Christ and do whatever you want. First of all, if he changes your affections, you won't want to do anything you want. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Second, if you play fast and loose with this, God can bring temporal judgment. And, and that's what he did with the Corinthians. Now, if you read 2 Corinthians, we know the guy actually repented and, and he did, God didn't take his life. But yeah, I, I just think the whole point is don't, don't play fast and loose. You are forgiven. And, but, but, but just because you're forgiven eternally, that doesn't mean God, God won't bring temporal judgment and discipline in your life um, at some level. It's a great question. But I wanted to broaden it up and give you some theology. Plus, I didn't want to talk about judgment anymore. But anyway, one last question. We'll just have one last. Did you have one, Tehran? Okay. You're just passing it around. Okay. Wendy?
Yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll try, I'll try my best and we'll make this the last one of the night. So, so the question is, you know, a person is a Catholic and they may have accepted Christ, but maybe they don't have everything worked out. So let me, let me tackle it two ways. First of all, the official teaching of the Catholic Church is not the true gospel. Not even close. Um, I'm so saddened by so many evangelicals that think that the Catholic Church is made up of true Christians. Uh, about once a year, I'll get in a debate. I was on the Billy Graham committee, and I got in a debate with a member of that committee. I've never really said much of this publicly because somebody said Catholics are Christians. And they said they were offended that I thought otherwise. And I told them how offended I was when people are told a false gospel and spend eternity in hell because of it. Of course, that made me Mr. Popular at the meeting. But, but the whole thing is that the Catholic Church teaches a false gospel. I personally believe, of course you can go to a false church and be a true Christian if you truly accept Christ. The, the second question is, how do you know if somebody has truly accepted Christ? It's really simple. In terms of objective criterion, it's really clear. Do you believe that Jesus is uh, your way of salvation by the grace of God? Here's the key word, alone. Through faith in Jesus Christ, death on the cross and resurrection, alone. Apart, and here's the key, apart from good works. That's the standard. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves, genitive of source. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the standard. The tricky part is how do I know if somebody's done that? Well, you're never going to know. if, if There will be people in heaven that you didn't think accepted Christ but did, and there will be people that won't be in heaven that you thought were Christians but aren't. That's why I just read it in my quiet time, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember that? Man sows wheat in his field in the middle of the night, an enemy comes in and sows tares, which are weeds. And then people say, well, what do we do? What do we do? Jesus says, let both grow together. And then, you know, then you remove the weeds first, then the good wheat. So the whole point of the parable of the wheat and the tares is you're not going to know until the very end. There, you, there would just be some people that, that, that are Christians that we didn't think were and aren't Christians that we thought were. So you're never going to know that for sure. But the biggest thing is to tell people, have you truly asked Jesus Christ in your life on these terms, by the grace of God alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection alone, apart from any good works or moralism? And if you ask them that, and then they say that, then you treat them like a Christian. And, of course, the ultimate... The ultimate, one of the best ways to know if somebody's a Christian, here's, here's my opinion, is not if they live a perfect life, not if they have their hair cut, not if they get rid of their tattoos, none of that. The, the, most, the, the most credible way I know if somebody's a Christian is this, their attitude towards sin. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it works like this, and then we'll end. If somebody sins, and you say, boy, what you're doing is a sin, and they go, you know what? It really doesn't bother me. You go, ooh, it's not good. A week later, you know, here's another sin. It really doesn't bother me. I think God, the more you begin to cavalierly dismiss sin in your life, the bigger the question for me forms, 
did you really accept Christ? And every time I see a sin that you're blowing off, that question becomes huge. On the other hand, somebody says, I accept Christ, and you go, boy, what you did is wrong. Really? Boy, I don't want to do it. Even if they struggle with it, at least they're saying, you know, I know it's wrong, and I want to fight it. So it's not about perfection, and it's not even about behavior per se. It's about your attitude towards sin. And it doesn't guarantee anything, but the more I see an attitude that can't stand sin, the more I say, I think they truly did accept Christ. And the less I see an attitude that, eh, sin, everybody sins, you know, we're all doing it, then the more the question becomes gigantic for me. See? But you're never going to know. So it's a great question. We went over... So, uh, but thank you very much. If you have other questions, let me know. If you have, need elder prayer, we have all of our elders here tonight, work of God, and uh, we're all going to be right up here and uh, praying for you. They're always wanting to be here, but sometimes schedule. So if you want to talk to me, that'd be great. Thank you very much. We'll see you on Sunday or Saturday or Friday.